2: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
5: The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media.
3: A big, new, sprawling space adventure in the Star Wars saga. The
5: Empire Strikes Back.
3: Coming to your galaxy next summer.
4: Loose Lips Bring Down Starships that's what the anti-spoiler poster said that hung on the wall at Pinewood Studios. When images and possible spoilers began being leaked from the set of The Force Awakens, director J.J. Abrams put up the propaganda-style posters to remind Star Wars guests and the cast and crew to keep mum about Episode 7 secrets. J.J. isn't the only one who has used that clever saying. Back in 1999, Industrial Light and Magic had t-shirts made for the Phantom Menace cast and crew that read, Loose Lips Bring Down Starships, above an image of the Millennium Falcon. Since the birth of the fandom, fans have clamored for new information and any sort of gossip from that galaxy far, far away. We now live in an era where we can get that information as it's happening. We can watch live streams of panels at Star Wars Celebration from the comfort of wherever we want. Fans are constantly watching, speculating, and obsessively trying to find out anything we can to get an inside look at this franchise we love. Recently, many news outlets reported that the upcoming film, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, was in trouble, and therefore undergoing weeks of reshoots to fix the film. Lucasfilm and the Rogue One production team quickly shot down those rumors, but I was surprised at how many people believed a movie could be made without some bumps and reshoots along the way. Can you imagine if social media had existed during the production of The Empire Strikes Back? Empire is now known as one of the greatest movies of all time, but its production was as dramatic as the movie itself. For this episode, I wanted to look back at the making of The Empire Strikes Back and its myriad of problems. The lore is well known to us fans, but I don't know. I thought it might give us some perspective on how a great movie is made, and also be fun to reminisce on a time before the internet and never ending stream of media. So grab a can of tab and button up your butterfly collar shirt, because we're journeying back to 1979. Aww. Star Wars, now known as A New Hope, was a mega-success in 1977, but George Lucas did not happily dive into its sequel. In fact, he contemplated selling the whole franchise to Fox Studios. He told Empire Magazine in 2002 that he thought about taking his percentage and going home and never thinking about Star Wars again but it was the Star Wars story that captivated him and helped motivate him to continue on. At that time, George Lucas was not ready to let go of the world he had created. As he told Empire Magazine, I know the way the characters live and breathe. He had the general story of the sequel in his head, but he did not have anything close to a script. So he hired Lee Brackett to write a screenplay based upon his ideas. Lee was a science fiction novelist in the 1940s and was known as the queen of space opera. She also co-wrote the screenplay for The Big Sleep, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Lee was also great at writing quick and snappy dialogue, something that wasn't necessarily George's strength. Sadly, two weeks after turning in her first rough draft of The Empire Strikes Back, Lee Brackett died of cancer. To make things more complicated, the start date to begin filming was fast approaching. George worked on his own version of the script, and then decided to hire another writer to rework his outline into a shooting script. That writer was Lawrence Kasdan. George Lucas had already hired Lawrence Kasdan to write the screenplay for Raiders of the Lost Ark. At the Cinequest Film Festival in 2015, a reporter asked Kasdan what George Lucas initially saw in him when he hired him to write Raiders.
3: I think he read the screenplay I'd written called Continental Divide, and I think that what he and Steven Spielberg responded to in that was that it had a slightly Hoxian relationship between the heroine who was a, she studied animals in the in the wild, and the guy that's sent to interviewer for various reasons is a Mike Royko character who was a big columnist in Chicago. And they're inherently their worlds clash and it is a, rom- a romance. So you're, gonna, you're talking about very different kinds of people, very different worldviews from different environments. How are they gonna come together and fall in love and what are the problems gonna be? And I think when George and Stephen read that, they thought that's the tone We want for Indy and Marion. They knew that Indy would have a, there would be a woman and that there would be the kind of banter that Howard Hawks had in a lot of his films between very strong women and strong men.
1: What do you usually do when you're not working?
3: Play the horses, fool around. No women? Well, I'm generally working on something most of the time.
1: Could that be stretched to include me?
3: Well, I like you. I told you that before.
1: I liked hearing you say it. But you didn't do much about it. Well, neither did you.
4: That was a clip from the film The Big Sleep, directed by Howard Hawks, the same Big Sleep that Lee Brackett co-wrote the screenplay for. Lauren Bacall was a strong heroine who could go toe-to-toe with tough guy Humphrey Bogart, both on-screen and off. In their films together, audiences loved watching their witty, rapid-fire dialogue and sexual tension. That same relationship dynamic can be seen between Indiana Jones and Marion Ravenwood, and Han Solo and Princess Leia. Just like Bogie and Bacall's characters, Han and Leia were from different environments and very different world views. So it was exciting to see how this unlikely duo would come together and fall in love.
3: Come on, admit it, sometimes you think I'm all right. Occasionally, maybe.
1: When you aren't acting like
3: a scoundrel. Scoundrel? Scoundrel. I like the sound of that.
4: Together, Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas wrote the screenplay for The Empire Strikes Back. They decided this would not be a standard sequel, simply rehashing ideas from Star Wars. They were going to take risks. And in the end, they came up with one of the biggest plot twists in cinematic history.
3: Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy as father and son.
4: Once the script was in place, it was time to hire a director. George Lucas decided it would be too difficult to be on set directing every day when he had to manage Lucasfilm, which was now an established company, secure financing for the film, and oversee the move of ILM from Los Angeles to Marin County. And the truth was, As he told Rolling Stone magazine in 1980, he hated directing. Quote, You go to work knowing just how you want a scene to be, but by the end of the day, you're usually depressed because you didn't do a good enough job. So, George whittled down his list of 100 potential directors and decided on his former USC film school lecturer, Irving Kirshner. George once told Kirshner that the reason he chose him was because, quote, You know everything a Hollywood director is supposed to know, but you're not Hollywood. It was true. Kirshner had never directed a blockbuster movie before. At that point in his career, he was known to be a quirky, independent filmmaker whose films were known for their focus on character development. He had also studied Zen Buddhism and believed in living in the present and not dwelling on what went wrong yesterday or fearing what might go wrong tomorrow. He was the perfect match for a story that introduced the zen-like Jedi master, Yoda. But Kirshner wasn't so sure he was up for the challenge. Here he is in the Star Wars documentary, Empire of Dreams.
5: I was asked by George to come to lunch at Universal. And he said, "Uh, how would you like to do the second Star Wars? We had no title for it at that point. And I said, gee, George... I don't think so. It's a phenomenal hit as a picture. A second one can only be a second one. It can't be as good because the first one is the breakthrough. And I told my agent about the meeting, and he said, are you crazy? Do
4: it. Script finalized and the cast and crew assembled. The Empire Strikes Back was finally underway. Their first filming location was Fintz, a small town in Norway. This would serve as the ice planet Hoth in the film. Because of the enormous popularity of the first film, a press conference was held in Oslo on February 29, 1979. Mark Hamill, producer Gary Kurtz, and Carrie Fisher, who came out of curiosity, not for filming answered reporters' questions at the Scandinavia Hotel. When a reporter asked if they were afraid of bad weather and fence, Gary Kurtz replied, Well, we want some bad weather. We have several scenes to shoot, and we need a variety of weather conditions. Of course, if we have two solid weeks of whiteout, that wouldn't be good. Hmm, if he only knew... The Norway production team started filming at the glacier near the town of Fins on Monday, March 5, 1979. They would suffer through the worst winter in Scandinavia that the country had had in 50 years. 20 below zero temperatures and 18 feet of snow. The conditions were horrendous. As Irving Kirshner recalls, going to the bathroom was a challenge because they had to wear seven layers of clothing. Loading the film into the cameras was at times impossible, since the acetate film would freeze and then snap in the icy wind. According to J.W. Rinsler's book, The Making of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, camera lenses had to be kept cold so that ice and snow would not melt on them, while camera bodies had to be kept warm so the film would move smoothly through the sprockets. Three avalanches on the railroad line made the Hoth film team cut off from the outside world, Heavy snowfall and terrible whiteout conditions forced the crew to film many of the hot scenes with Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford, not more than 20 feet away from their hotel. When a wall of snow prevented the team from getting out of their hotel to shoot, Irvin Kirshner and the crew found a great solution for them, but not so much for Mark Hamill.
5: So we put the camera in the doorway of the hotel, going out the back door, The crew was all inside, toasty, warm, and Mark had to go out into the snow and go running away from the ice creature. And we never left the doorway. (laughs) And he froze to death and we were fine.
4: That scene they shot was when Luke Skywalker escapes from the wampa and staggers around on Hoth. Just like Luke Skywalker, Mark Hamill had had a near-death experience two years earlier. In January 1977, Hamill was driving his new BMW on a California freeway.
3: I was on a deserted freeway and I was going really fast and not knowing. It was about 6.30 in the evening, quarter to 7. And I was playing, uh, what's the music? Oh, so it was really... Deserted and I, I realized, oh my God, I'm way, I took the wrong freeway. I was way out in the boonies. I saw, I saw my off-ramp coming up real quickly and just tried to negotiate like four lanes. Now the only thing I can be thankful for is that I didn't hurt anybody. That's something I would have had to live with, but I just smashed the heck out of my nose and my cheekbone, I fractured both of them.
4: When Hamill woke up in the hospital, he knew he had hurt himself, quote, very, very, very badly, but I wasn't really sure. And then someone held a mirror up to my face, and I just felt like my career was over. Mark would look visibly different after the accident. He had to have reconstructive surgery, and it would take him months to recover. But according to George Lucas, they didn't have to make any changes to the script to explain Hamill's new appearance. In George's mind, some time had passed in the story, and Luke had been fighting for the rebellion, so the change in Hamill's face was justifiable. Contrary to urban legend, the wampa scene where Luke gets clawed was not written to explain why Luke looked different in this film. George Lucas claims it was written to add suspense at the beginning of the film, though the scene worked to their advantage nonetheless. There was a scene where after Lucas saved from the wampa, his damaged face is attended by a droid. That scene was cut from the film, but it is clear that George Lucas and Irving Kirshner were aware they might have to address Mark Hamill's post-accident appearance. And as for the scars we see on his face after the wampa attack, Empire's makeup artists used a lot of Hamill's existing scars to build upon and exaggerate for the film. After the cast and crew experienced their own Battle of Hoth in Norway, they returned to Elstree Studios in the UK on March 12th. Despite all their challenges, they were still on schedule. But like the Scandinavian weather, that too was about to change. Star Wars makeup artist and creature designer, Stuart Freeborn, was under the gun to finish the Yoda puppet in time for shooting the Dagobah scenes. One day, legendary puppeteer and the voice of Yoda, Frank Oz, paid Stuart a visit in his workroom. As the two chatted, Frank played with Yoda's head, mindlessly turning it over and over in his hands. Suddenly, his hand slipped, and the Jedi Master's skull fell to the floor. Stuart Freeborn picked up his cracked creation, inspected the damage, and said, I need a drink. Things wouldn't go any smoother on the Dagobah set. For one thing, the set had to be built about five feet above the floor of the stage. The crew then put holes or ridges so Frank Oz could stick his hand through them and move the Yoda puppet along a certain direction. On top of the set were Dagobah's rocks, caves, and trees. The biggest problem was no one could hear anything that was going on. Frank Oz and the puppeteers below the stage couldn't hear what was happening above them, and Mark Hamill couldn't hear Frank deliver his lines down below. Frank would often have to remind Irving Kirshner to speak into the hole below, instead of giving direction to the Yoda puppet on set. Eventually, Mark Hamill would get an earpiece so he could hear Yoda's lines. Besides audio challenges, it was tremendously physical work for Frank Oz and his puppeteers. There was one puppeteer doing the cables for Yoda's ears, one person doing the cables for the eyes, and another person doing the left hand. So it took four people to bring Yoda to life. Frank Oz felt the pressure. Yoda's scenes were taking way too long to film, in part because he had never done puppeteering like this before. But Yoda, in George Lucas's opinion, was the key to the main story of The Empire Strikes Back. He told Empire Magazine in 2002, quote, The goal is for the hero to learn to respect everybody and pay attention to the poorest person. That's where the key to his success will be. I wanted Yoda to be the exact opposite of what you might think. End quote. Yoda is now one of the most beloved characters from Star Wars. But back in 1979, it was a huge risk to make a main character diminutive, green, dressed in rags, and who spoke, um, well, let's just say, an unusual way of speaking Yoda has.
3: Size matters not. Look at me. Just me by my size, do you?
5: <clears throat> hmm. That was like a real leap because that puppet had not worked the whole film would have been down the tubes. It just, you know, it would have been a disaster. If it had been a silly little Muppet, if it had been Kermit running around in that movie, the whole movie would have collapsed under the weight of it.
4: When a Vanity Fair reporter asked Irving Kirshner which scene was more difficult to shoot, Kirsch said it was not Dagobah, but rather the carbon-free scene that was much more challenging. First of all, the entire set was painted black. It was a round set, but they couldn't build a full circle, because it would have been very hard to manipulate with the camera, so they built a half circle. And according to Kirsch, it was a challenge because it was very hot, and they used lots of steam shooting out of the floor. It got so hot that some of the little people fainted because they were closer to the steam. Between the heat and the shape of the set, the entire staging of that scene was incredibly difficult. To complicate things further, the actors were about 30 feet off the ground, so everyone had to be extremely careful they didn't fall. Despite the logistical challenges, the carbon-free scene is one of the most memorable scenes from The Empire Strikes Back, thanks in part to a line of dialogue that, as many of you listening know, was improvised. The way the scene was originally written, Leia tells Han, I love you, and Han replies, I love you too. They shot the scene as written, but Kirschner thought it didn't seem right for the character of Han Solo. So during their lunch break, the director told Harrison Ford that they would try the scene again, and this time, just say whatever comes to mind. I love you. I know. Cinematic history had been made.
2: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
4: It's a wrap, Irvin Kirshner told his assistant director, David Tomlin, after hearing Harrison Ford's improvised line. Tomlin looked at Kirshner in complete disbelief and said, quote, you're not happy with that, are you? Kirshner said, yes, it's the perfect Han Solo remark. And that was that until the maker saw the first cut of the film. Wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not the line in the script, George Lucas told Kirshner. Kirshner argued that Han Solo would never say, I love you too. He was a rebel. George believed the audience would laugh when hearing Han's response. So after mulling it over, the two agreed that they would do two preview screenings once the film was edited and set to music. One cut with... I know, and one cut with, I love you too. George was right. The audience in San Francisco erupted in laughter after hearing Han's response to Leia's profession of love. But after the film, audience members shared how much they loved that line. So George decided not to have a second screening. Irvin Kirshner was a fan of improvising dialogue in order to draw out emotions from his actors. It definitely worked because the performances in The Empire Strikes Back are, in my opinion, the best of the original trilogy. The only problem with improvisation was that it caused delays during production, and they began to fall even further behind schedule. George Lucas, meanwhile, was busy supervising ILM as they worked on creating the AT-ATs, the floating city Bespin, and a space chase through an asteroid field. I could go into the challenges the ILM team faced and how they continued to revolutionize the special effects industry, but I think I'll save that for another episode. Nowadays, reshoots are standard practice when making a big budget film. The Empire Strikes Back was no exception. Here's a clip from the documentary Empire of Dreams, a producer Gary Kurtz talking about a reshoot on Cloud City.
3: We shot several scenes in Empire over again There's a scene in Cloud City where Han Solo character is kind of pacing up and down and Princess Leia comes in and he reacts to the way she looks because she's dressed differently than she has in the entire rest of the film. You look beautiful. You should wear girls' clothes all the time. We looked at the dailies and we weren't happy with anything, really. Um, The attitude of the actors was too obvious.
1: I hope Luke made it to the fleet all right.
3: I'm sure he's fine probably sitting around wondering what we're up to right now
1: you know your friend Lando's is very charming but i don't trust him
3: trust him he's an old friend of mine and we could have let that go but it just didn't feel right so we shot it in a slightly more subtle fashion which is the way it's in the film now
0: i don't trust lando
3: well i don't trust him either he is my friend Besides, we'll soon be gone.
0: Then you're as good as gone, aren't you?
4: Yes, they did a reshoot to change the tone of a scene. And it made it better. Hmm. Not all reshoots indicate trouble, but reshooting scenes did cause more production delays and put their schedule behind even further. At one point during filming, Irving Kirshner told George Lucas that he was behind schedule. Not that it was anyone's fault, but because everything was so complex. Many of the special effects that were done on set often did not work at all. Lucas's answer? Keep doing what you're doing. Just keep shooting. George may have been supportive and calm to Kirsch, but internally, he was freaking out. Not only were they behind schedule, but their $18.5 million film budget was quickly ballooning out of control. Charles Weber, who was the Lucasfilm president at the time, recalls the day that three of the top executives from Bank of America Entertainment walked into his office and said they had to pull their loan. Charles said, quote, How can the largest bank in the entertainment business with a sequel to the most successful movie ever out be wanting to pull my loan? They dryly replied that they had a new credit manager, and his rule was that if the budget goes over, they pull out. The bankers knew it was a huge mistake, but as they often say, their hands were tied. When they left his office, Charles tried to figure out how he would make a million dollar payroll that Friday. The difference between the studio system and operating independently was becoming very clear to George Lucas. Studios have large resources to draw on for whatever they need, whereas independents do not. George knew the easy solution would be for 20th Century Fox to take over. But he didn't want to give up his rights just to pay for his film. So Charles Weber went to the First National Bank of Boston to see if they'd buy out their $25 million debt. George even promised the bankers, quote, I will eventually pay you back if it takes me the rest of my life, end quote. Ultimately, he had to get 20th Century Fox to agree to be guarantors of the loan and co-sign the credit agreement. It may have been a humbling experience for George, but the other alternative was letting Fox own the film and essentially lose his independence. Thankfully, this new arrangement meant he maintained his rights and Fox would remain just the distributor. With funding finally secured, it was time to manage another big problem on the set. Spoilers. One of the reasons I wanted to look back at The Empire Strikes Back was because of the recent kerfuffle of potential spoilers being leaked about Rogue One in Episode 8. How did they manage to keep one of the biggest plot twists in movie history a secret? If Empire was in production today, I believe they'd still be able to pull it off. And it wouldn't require printing the script on dark red paper like J.J. Abrams did for The Force Awakens. If you photocopy dark red pages on a black-and-white photocopier, it will print out black, thus making the copied pages unreadable. They wouldn't have to collect anyone's phones before entering the set. Nope. All they would have to do is exactly what they did back in 1979. Tell no one. Throughout Empire's production, plot points began getting leaked to the press. The main culprit? the man in the Darth Vader suit, David Prowse. Allegedly, he was responsible for nine leaks from the film. So in order to keep the film's Big Daddy secret a secret, only George Lucas, Irving Kirshner, and the film's producers knew the truth about Luke's parentage. In the script given to the cast and crew, the scene was deliberately written to sidetrack renowned leaker David Prowse. According to that script, instead of the line, No, I am your father, Darth Vader tells Luke, You don't know the truth. Obi-Wan killed your father. Later on, James Earl Jones would be dubbed in saying the iconic line, of course. Not even Mark Hamill knew the truth until right before filming. Here's Kirshner and Hamill recalling that moment.
5: I met with Mark and said, You know that Darth Vader's your father. What? They had taken me aside and said, this is what he's really going to say. And we're gonna do the scene. And Darth Vader will be saying stuff that doesn't count. Forget it. Use your own rhythm compared to what he's doing.
4: It took him a few takes, but Hamill got there and brought the emotional weight and depth that this big reveal deserved.
3: Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. He told me enough! He told me you killed him! No. I am your father. No. No. It's not true! That's impossible!
4: And what did David Prowse think about the father son plot twist? Here he is in an interview from 1980.
5: It surprised me actually, because I didn't know anything about it until I was sat in the cinema last Saturday, and I and that was the first I knew of it.
3: And yeah. what did you do?
0: <laughs> practically collapsed in the seat. Yes. <laughs>
4: Strangely enough, in a San Francisco newspaper in 1978, two years before Empire came out, David Prouse spoiled the big plot twist. It was at a meet-and-greet event with fans where Prowse said that Darth Vader would reveal that he's Luke's long-lost father, in his words, Star Wars 3. There would be a do-or-die lightsaber duel, and then, quote, father can't kill son, son can't kill father, so they live again to star in Star Wars 4, end quote. The crowd of fans cheered. Now, I don't believe Prouse had any idea that this was, in fact, the truth. I think he made it up to try and impress the crowd of fans. It would have been dumb luck, but if there had been social media back in 1978, The Empire Strikes Back would have been spoiled. Well, it kind of was for whoever read that newspaper article. The Empire Strikes Back became one of the greatest films of all time. Within three months at the box office, Empire earned back its $33 million budget. In spite of their original screenwriter passing away, spoilers being leaked, going over budget, falling behind schedule, reshoots, losing their bank loan, and cast members constantly arguing, Carrie and Harrison, the film to date has made over $1.5 billion, adjusted for inflation, of course. More importantly... The Empire Strikes Back has secured its place in cinematic history. And its incredible story and characters have remained in the hearts of fans for 36 years. I don't know about you, but I loved looking back at all the drama behind The Empire Strikes Back. With all of its ups and downs, I am amazed at how perfect the film turned out. If Empire was being made today and all the production craziness was tweeted and blogged about, I think many people would believe the film was going to be a disaster. Who knows? Maybe the drama behind the scenes helped the drama on screen. I hope you enjoyed looking back at the making of The Empire Strikes Back as much as I did. Even with a constant stream of rumors and speculation, these new Star Wars stories seem to be light on drama behind the scenes. Or perhaps Lucasfilm has gotten even better at keeping those Star Wars secrets. Feel free to share your Star Wars secrets with me on Twitter at Jennifer Landa, hashtag JediBeat, or my Facebook page. Be sure to subscribe to the Force Center feed to never miss a Jedi Beat or any of our shows like Data Bank Brawl, Spotlight Star Wars, and of course, our 4 Center main show with Ken Knapsock and Joseph Scrimshaw. You can find us on iTunes, Podomatic, or Stitcher. And while you're at it, tell a friend. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, this has been the Jedi Beat.